0: Out of the fourth place, chapter five, welcome to the club. You remember sociologist Ray Oldenburg's model describing the various places that people live, work, and play. The first place is the home, private life. The second place is work or school, productive life. The third place is the pub, the cafe, the park, what he calls informal public life. Oldenburg's focus in his book, The Great Good Place, is on the third place. He lets you experience the smells, tastes, laughter, and conversation of the French café, the historic German-American beer garden, and the English pub. When I first read his book, my longing to hang out in these third places was palpable. But I'm not writing about the third place. I'm writing about the fourth place. I'm making the case that there should be a fourth category. If there is a category called informal public life the third place, then there should be a counterpart called formal public life, the fourth place. As we have discovered, the church is part of this fourth category, the fourth place. This is not where we are meant to be. Jesus moved the temple out of the fourth place, the physical building and into a mobile community. Yet today, the fourth place is where we are. Ride alongside country clubs, stadiums, and other places of insiders and outsiders. People with tickets and those out of luck. Oldenburg never uses the term fourth place, but at one point he contrasts the English pub, a thriving third place, against the English club, a fourth place for England's elite. The land of the pub is also the land of the club. They are polar opposites. The former helped England into her modern democracy, while the latter still epitomizes the divisiveness of England's long-standing and notorious stratification system. The word club derives from the Anglo-Saxon cleofan or cleofan, literally our cleave. The word cleave meaning both to divide and to adhere. Thus, club represents a unity achieved for the purpose of division. The English club has served both to symbolize and enforce England's long tradition of inequality. He goes on to say, The snubs and smugs have exclusive clubs, but the soul of England resides in her pubs. Not only does it rhyme, but it's also true. And not just about England. The soul of your city, your town, your community is also in her public life. Regardless, for most of us, that's not where the church lives— No, instead, we are Oldenburg's club. We are the event in the building. This chapter begins part two of our journey through church media. Part one told the story of how the church got into the fourth place. Part two will detail the enormous impact of the fourth place on today's church. We will spend one chapter on each medium, place, people, and practices. We begin here with place. The primary impact of Constantine on the church regarding place is that he changed the very definition of church from a community to a building, the fourth place. Constantine, the architect, built us a beautiful club, complete with an impressive and elaborate decorated clubhouse. The church left the regular rhythms of the first, second, and third places, and the world was redivided into sacred and secular. As Oldenburg says, a unity achieved for the purpose of division. In the process, the church received a new mission. Rather than seeking the kingdom of God spread into the diverse beauty of every culture, every place, our unintentional mission would be to get people to join our largely homogenous clubs. Attractional by nature To incarnate is to become human. In the incarnation, Jesus left his heavenly throne and entered the mess of culture. He ate in homes, worked as a carpenter, and hung out on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus lived his life among Jewish first, second, and third places. Everything he did was about going to people, not expecting them to come to him. This is what it means to be incarnational. We enter the world of the people we want to love and impact. We don't invite people to come to a holy place. The holy place goes to them. Attractional is just the opposite. In attractional ministry, the church building is seen as the holy center. Our efforts draw people toward our programs inside our buildings. We use personal invitations, mailers, signage, social media, and other means to get them to come to us. The website, the parking lot, the lobby, and the seating design all move people from the outside to the inside. Many churches and leaders are already aware of this. They have already identified their attractional tendencies and may have even adjusted their logo or preached a sermon series using words like missional and incarnational. What we often fail to realize, however, is that we cannot become incarnational simply by preaching different sermons or adjusting our mission statement. The medium is the message, and fourth places are attractional by nature. The Rules of the Fourth Place Fourth places, by their very existence, pull people toward their center. Why? Because we must convince people to leave their normal lives and join us in our place, like this. Note to the audio listener, there's a chart again, the Our Place, Their Place, Our Thing, Their Thing. And there's huge arrows that are drawing people from the lower right quadrant, the Their Place, Their Thing, into the upper left quadrant, the Our Place, Our Thing. Clubs, teams, events, and associations all vie for the time of already busy people. So do churches. We purchase advertising space, billboards, and commercials. We pour our hearts into our logos and branding. Why? Because we have a difficult job. We must convince people that our fourth place is worth their time. Once we have them inside, the task is equally difficult. We must convince them that we are superior to the competition. We must convince people to stay and pay. Our financial bottom line, our very survival depends on their paying membership. We use more spiritual words than these, of course, but anyone in ministry understands the pressure to self-promote. Why do we do this? The reason is simple. The church now occupies the fourth place and therefore must operate according to the rules of the fourth place. If you work for a church and regret having to spend so much time, money, and personnel on branding, marketing, video, and production, the inconvenient truth is that as long as we occupy the fourth place, these functions will be our priority. It's in the fourth place DNA. A Church Without a Footprint While we are used to churches as centers of self-promotion, let's stop and think for a minute. Can you imagine Jesus handing out flyers for an event? Can you imagine Jesus hyping up an upcoming concert? Can you imagine Jesus wearing a church t-shirt with an awesome cross logo? Of course not. And it's not just because they weren't invented yet. The reason is because Jesus became a part of the world he wanted to touch. He didn't stand out and draw attention to himself through clever marketing. Clearly, mobs of people followed him everywhere. People tend to do that when you're healing their children and filling their starving stomachs. Yet, in all of this, Jesus never self-promoted. When they wanted to make him king by force, he walked away. When they wanted him to perform, he refused. Jesus was not trying to get people to come to a separate place or event. He was trying to integrate his life with theirs. I want to share one of my favorite patristic writings— It is known as the Letter to Diognetus, and was likely written around 130 A.D. by someone who identifies himself simply as a disciple of the apostles. It explains the early Christian attitude toward integration better than I ever could. Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of humankind by country, speech, or customs. They do not live in cities of their own. They do not speak a special language. They do not follow a peculiar manner of life. Their teaching was not invented by the ingenuity or speculation of men, nor do they advocate mere book learning as other groups do. They live in Greek cities, and they live in non-Greek cities, according to the lot of each one. They conform to the customs of their country in dress, food, and the general mode of life, and yet they show remarkable and admittedly extraordinary structure of their own life together. They live in their own countries, but only as guests and alien. They take part in everything as citizens and endure everything as aliens. Every foreign country is their homeland, and every homeland is a foreign country to them. They marry like everyone else. They beget children, but they do not expose them after they are born. They have a common table, but no common bed. They live in the flesh but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but through their way of life they surpass these laws. They love all people and are persecuted by all. Nobody knows them, and yet they are condemned. They are put to death, and just through this they are brought to life. They are poor as beggars, and yet they make many rich." In a word, what the soul is in the body, the Christians are in the world. And as the soul is present in all members of the body, so Christians are present in all of the cities of the world. As the soul lives in the body, yet does not have its origin in the body, so the Christians live in the world, yet are not of the world. Invisible, the soul is enclosed by the visible body. In the same way, the Christians are known to be in the world, but their religion remains invisible. Did you catch that last line? Their religion remains invisible. Can you imagine that? A church without walls, without a big cross out front, without t-shirts and bumper stickers, a church not known by its merchandise and paraphernalia, but by the good it does for the world in which it resides. When Christianity is called invisible, some will be cautious because people have at times used the term the invisible church to argue that Christians do not need to be part of a community a gathered church. My church is in the mountains, they say. Of course Christians need to gather. We are a spiritual family, not isolated individuals. By calling the church invisible, the writer above is not arguing for Christians to avoid gathering. He is simply saying that Christians are not meant to be a separate subculture in their own place, but a redemptive community knit into the prevailing culture. How did they live like this in the early church? To stretch the imagination, I want to show the same graphic as above and now reveal where the early church fits on the chart. Note to the audio listener, again, he has the same four-quadrant chart, our place, their place, our thing, their thing. And here he's showing the lower half with the same buildings as before, but in the lower left quadrant, our thing, their place, there's groups of people gathering in those places. And then in the lower right side, the same buildings, coffee shops, houses, workplaces, he has individual people in each of those buildings, in the their thing, their place quadrant. The early church had no fourth place, no religious zone. They only occupied the bottom two quadrants. They incarnated themselves into their world like Jesus. They still gathered, but they gathered in non-religious spaces, the our thing, their place quadrant, This does not mean they never gathered in buildings. It means they did not create religious buildings called churches. Church was a who, not a what. I show groups on the left side and scattered dots on the right side to show that the church was the church wherever they were gathered or scattered. Church was not primarily an event, but a spiritual family. Families are still families, whether they are doing things like communion, prayer, and teaching in buildings, or simply living their normal lives together. The early church had no Our Place quadrant. The top half of this chart didn't even exist. Can you imagine your Christian experience without your building? Now, I want to be clear. God has done wonderful things in our buildings. I have been very impacted personally in religious buildings. I was raised there, went to youth group there, and had significant encounters with God there. For centuries, people have been experiencing God within the walls of church structures. God has used those buildings to serve our people, our communities, and our world in profound ways. This book is about a change in wineskin, not a change in wine. God has used our media to produce some beautiful wine. Regardless, I want to talk about the message of our medium, or wineskin, What are our buildings saying? What is the world hearing? These questions become more important the wider the cultural gap grows between those inside the building and those outside it. To the degree that our buildings communicate that they are holy places, they inadvertently and sometimes advertently communicate that every other place is unholy. That's what temple media do. By creating a holy inside, they naturally create an unholy outside. The nature of the club is to divide insiders from outsiders, sacred from secular. Jesus came to proclaim a different message. I love you before you get cleaned up. I don't need you to leave your world. I will teach you to redeem your world from the inside out. Think of how the message of a church gathering in a school differs from a religious building. Listen to the message inherent in the school medium. God cares about the world of our kids. God cares about education, not just Bible studies, but math and history and languages. The God that created science is actually pleased when his children study it. What about the message of a church gathered in a theater? God loves the arts, not just the ones labeled Christian, but ones that value the whole human experience of love, anger, beauty, tragedy, and death. God so values the human experience that he became a tragedy for us. He became death for us. Jesus, the word of God, the radiance of his glory, a walking masterpiece. Do you see it? Christ himself came to affirm and redeem the human condition, not separate us from it. When we live and gather within cultural spaces, we proclaim the message of Jesus. God loved us enough to leave his own place and come to where we are. He became Emmanuel, God with us. The great irony is that when the church becomes invisible, entwined with the places of culture, Jesus finally becomes visible. People can finally see a God who cares about his beloved creation enough to get his hands dirty in it. The best place for the church is as a redemptive community, embedded within, not separated from, culture. We hear this concept echoed in the teachings of Jesus, Jesus said that the kingdom is like yeast in dough. You cannot see the yeast, but it causes the bread to rise. It fills the whole room with the delicious fragrance, even though it's invisible. Jesus said the kingdom is like salt. It makes everything taste delicious, but all you see is the food, not the salt itself. Christendom separated Christians into their own club. To stay with Jesus' metaphor, this would be like separating salt from food. Salt is wonderful as long as it is flavoring and preserving food. Salt by itself is disgusting. Yeast is miraculous when it makes bread rise. Yeast by itself is useless. Unfortunately, to many in our culture, Christians and their buildings are just as useless an unsightly blight on the city, a parking annoyance, an unfortunate city planning or zoning decision. Rather than observing a humble community loving and serving our neighborhoods, they see us striving for bigger and better buildings and performances. Wouldn't we rather they see Jesus? I wonder if our attractional nature might be backfiring on us. A sidebar, Church and Other Places by Dudley Callison. The church becomes a powerful revelation of Christ when it happens within the normal rhythms of life. Rather than going to church, we become a spiritual family right where people live. In the first place, the phenomenon of house church or what we call neighbor church in my neighborhood is simply the gathering of people who share their faith with others who live nearby. Even if some attended church elsewhere on Sunday or don't attend at all, the opportunity to share spiritual life with those we live near becomes a springboard to deeper community, healthier neighborhoods, and serving those nearby in need. In the second place, work. Businesses can offer employees the opportunity to participate in pre-work Bible studies, informal social gatherings, and community service projects. We recently established a co-working space where people can pursue their occupational dreams in a supportive community. Some co-workers know Christ and see this as a primary place to introduce others to a faith-oriented life. We also see this happening in the third place. Faith community built around common interests. Quote-unquote churches are popping up among motorcycle clubs, fitness centers, local pubs, RV and camping groups, even NASCAR fans. Wherever believers gather with shared interests, they can also share their interest in Christ, inviting others to participate who are still on the journey of faith. The fourth place unleashed. Attractional meant one thing in Constantine's day. People didn't have cars, they simply stuck a towering building in the city center, rang a bell, and the people came. The church was all Roman Catholic, so there was really no competition to worry about. Today, however, we are dealing with attractional on steroids. Why? For one, we have a growing cultural gap between the fourth place and its surrounding culture. The greater the culture distance between church insiders and secular outsiders, the harder we have to work to attract them. Add to that the reality that we are consumer-driven and celebrity-obsessed. Add to that the fact that we are competing with one another for limited human market share. And it is no wonder we now have fourth places outshining the Tower of Babel. A senior pastor of a church in Texas once described his church as a town within a city. They have a $50 million annual budget and more than 20,000 attendees. Their campus includes a massive worship complex, a fitness center, a bookstore, and a cafe. When asked to explain why they need all of the excess, the pastor responded, God's house ought to be beautiful. Constantine would be so proud. Not coincidentally, the same trend toward bigger and better exists in other fourth-place industries. Hotels are competing for the most amenities, while multi-billion-dollar stadiums race for the most exotic fan features. In the country club industry, medium-sized clubs are closing while all-inclusive mega-clubs are ever-expanding. Sound familiar? In all fourth places, attraction is the name of the game. In an attempt to maintain this level of attractiveness, church budgets and staff are forced to spend their resources keeping up their fourth-place image rather than focusing on social justice, discipleship, and mission. Small churches are not immune either. Most small churches actually spend a higher percentage on staff and buildings than megachurches. A pastor of a small church recently told me that most of their congregation moved out of their part of town more than 20 years ago, seeking nicer neighborhoods. These commuters still attend their church building Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, and Wednesday nights. Many of their leaders add an additional one to three nights on top of that. Ironically, none of them live anywhere near the church building, some driving up to an hour. This small church is churning through enormous resources of time and money and is making virtually zero positive impact on their neighborhood. majority of churches in the United States have between 50 and 100 people, and most of those people are between the ages of 50 and 100. It's not that small churches are avoiding being attractional, it's that they are losing the attraction battle. While there are many great exceptions of small churches deeply integrated into their communities, especially in rural areas, many small churches are simply no longer attractive and are having to close their doors. Fourth place churches are exhausting themselves building better temples or clinging to small old ones, while Jesus told us that we are to be the temple. From attractional to extractional, hopefully you're starting to see the direct link from church in the fourth place to our attractional missiology. The way we do our mission Unfortunately, Constantine's impact does not stop there. Our entire way of being the church, our ecclesiology, also comes from our nature as a fourth place. Alan Hirsch refers to our ecclesiology as extractional. Think, for example, of how we typically practice discipleship. We remove or extract people from their first, second, and third places and ask them to come to a fourth place to grow more like Jesus. Certainly churches with strong small group ministries or missional communities meeting in homes are moving in the right direction. They are getting people into the first place together. Still, most churches use their buildings for almost everything. Classes, services, Bible studies, men and women's ministry events, you name it. Our primary mode of discipleship is extractional. We leave our families, wave to our neighbors, drive past the homeless, the workplace, the coffee shop, and the park on our way to the fourth place. Our missiology is attractional and our ecclesiology is extractional. Our entire system is built to separate us from culture. We worship in the fourth place. We serve in the fourth place. We give to the fourth place. Church success has largely been determined by attendance and giving to the fourth place. Discipleship has been measured by Bible study hours logged in the fourth place. Evangelism means inviting people into the fourth place. It's no surprise we end up with more consumers than disciples. To make disciples, Jesus called people out of of the crowds, and onto the road. They watched him, walked with him, and healed with him. In the process, he wore down their racist, materialistic, religious selves until they had nothing left but love. Discipleship for Jesus was all about being a spiritual family right in the midst of culture. It was about a community of people taking risks in the real world with real people and real problems. It had very little to do with sitting in chairs in rows in a building. Service for Jesus was about justice for the oppressed, not becoming efficient parking lot attendants or tackling sound issues. We have built fourth-place programs and called them evangelism and discipleship. One tries to save people and the other tries to grow people. Evangelism and discipleship, at their best, are not programs. They are part of a way of life and community. The reason the word evangelism gives people PTSD is because we have made it into a program and we made people our project. It was never meant to be this way. Jesus lived among people and loved them. We were attracted to his extraordinary way of life, like thirsty people to a glass of cold water. It was natural, not force. It was real, not artificial. The nature of Christianity. Christianity in its nature is not an event in a building, but a people movement. It's not a subculture of people who like all the same types of non-offensive music or non-vulgar language or non-dancing bodies. We are not cultural separatists. We are salt and light and yeast. We do not extract. We incarnate. We are not building owners. We are neighborhood stewards. We are the faith that didn't even have a name for its first decades. The early believers identified themselves as part of the way. It was years until they would first be called Christians. Even then, the name simply referred to their identity as followers of Christ, not a separate religion. Other religions look to their center when they pray. We look to our Father who is unseen. Other religions follow a guru in a holy building. We follow the way of life of a homeless man. Every other religion connects the place of its founder's life's events, and particularly their death, with its religious center. Christians don't have a Mecca. Christians don't even know where Jesus died and was buried. The tour guide will tell you they do, but they don't. Christians didn't even honor holy places until Constantine. In fact, it was his mother Helena who enshrined what she thought were the holiest places of Christianity, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the Tomb, and the Church of the Nativity, and more. Constantine commissioned basilicas to be built right on top of these holy sites. Talk about a cultural footprint. He built Rome right on top of Bethlehem. That is not irony, friends. That is a sign of the new wineskin under Constantine called Christendom, where Christianity imposes culture rather than integrates with culture. Jesus described his kingdom as yeast working through the entire batch of dough. He did not describe his kingdom as a gigantic loaf of bread bejeweled with fruits and nuts, squashing all of the smaller loaves into submission. The letter to Diognetus above should not be shocking if we were our students of the New Testament. Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16 describes the people of faith. All these people still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Christians are not destined to have their perfect dream home now. We are not supposed to sit back in our comfortable megachurch complexes. We are strangers on earth. We are a unique community, but without our own unique place. We sacrifice for each other more than those in a club would ever would, but we refuse to build ourselves a clubhouse. We don't need the fourth place. We can walk together as a community within the streets, homes, alleys, hospitals, and warehouses of our existing culture. As a church, we have drafted our own architecture, developed our own language, and created our own music subculture. We have separated schools, separated bookstores, separated clothing lines, separate movies, separate artwork, everything. You name it, we have a Christian version of it. Of course, the choices we have made to separate from culture are not all black and white. These are hard decisions. We may be making them because we think they will make us or our children be more holy or more safe. Regardless, Jesus is praying something different for us. In John seventeen fifteen through 18, Jesus prays, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Christians must live with an unresolvable tension. We are not comfortable in the world. We want our own place, but we can't have our own place, at least not yet. Didn't Jesus long for his own home? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, Luke 9.58 says. Didn't Paul want a comfortable home while he languished in prison? Of course, but in the meantime he was loving and serving his guards, reaching the members of Caesar's household with the gospel, and writing letters that make up half the New Testament. A Visible Community When my family moved into our Tacoma, Washington neighborhood with six other families, we did so intentionally to place our community in the midst of people who did not know Christ. We didn't have a building to worry about. We were free to invest in our neighborhood. We served neighbors through block parties and enjoyed the existing rhythms of the community. Eventually, one of our group members headed up Safe Streets, a program to help neighbors watch out for each other. Another teamed up with neighbors to spearhead the annual garage sale. Still another started a club at the local elementary school where many kids got to meet Jesus. When Christianity became invisible by being worked into the dough of our neighborhood, people around us could finally see Christ. Neighbors watched as we walked to each other's homes for our weekly meal. They saw us clean up a neighbor's backyard full of old mattresses and a decade's worth of an abusive husband's junk. As our neighbors saw us, their casual observations turned into curiosity. Curiosity to relationship and relationship to discipleship. We didn't have a building we needed to attract them to, and we didn't have to extract them out of their world. Jesus came to them. How? Through us. That is how a Christian's approach to place is supposed to work. This is true not just of house churches. Do you need a larger place for your gatherings? Rather than creating another church building on another corner, consider asking the question, what does my neighborhood need? Does your community need a place for kids after school? Maybe you build a community center, a third place instead of a fourth place. Does your neighborhood have people commuting hours away from their families for work? Maybe you build a co-working space, a second place, and gather there with your community during non-work hours, or a medical clinic, or a coffee shop, Better still, are you sure you need to own the building? Why not join people where they are already? Consider renting a place that already exists. Maybe there is a school available that would appreciate the extra rental income. Maybe there is a back room of a coffee shop. If you need a larger space, consider a convention center or hotel conference space. Whatever you build or rent, don't build it above them, build it among them, with them, and for them. Let your medium speak a new message. God still loves His good creation enough to become a part of it. Where are we going? For some of you, this is a very new way of thinking about church. For others, you have been in this dialogue for a long time. You are excited that we have named some of the issues you have felt. Perhaps you have been frustrated by church and now you are starting to dream again. Others will feel a little or maybe a lot of frustration. Maybe you agree with some or all of the problems I have presented. Okay, we are attractional. We are extractional. What in the world am I supposed to do about it? I will make no apologies that this book is all about change. I am pushing pretty hard at times on some long accepted ways of being. Although I'm an idealist, I also understand a little bit about reality in the church. While God might be inspiring some of you toward radical wineskin-altering changes, He might be stirring others towards more incremental or slower changes. This book will be helpful for both. We will go deep into the question, how do we structure a church for the modern world that occupies only the bottom two quadrants? It would look like this. Note to the audio listener, he is showing the same diagram he showed previously in this chapter where the buildings are only visible in the lower half, the their place, uh, groups of people in the our thing, their place, and individual people into their thing, their place. However, we will also ask the question, what can established building-based churches do to make their forms, their media speak a better message of integration? It's not like God hasn't used our buildings in amazing ways in the past. Of course he has. But what can we do to help reach this next generation and align our media with our message? Hint, It will have largely to do with shifting our emphasis in one, two, or all three of these directions. Note to the audio listener, in this four-quadrant diagram, he is showing the church in the upper left, our place, our thing quadrant, but then has arrows pointing to each of the other three quadrants. A, down to our thing, their place, B, across to our place, their thing, and C, diagonal down to their place, their thing. Where are you? Okay, so that's where we're headed. Where are you now? In order to get anywhere, you first need to know where we are starting out. You have a unique situation. Your starting point is different from anyone else's reading this book. In order to seek God's direction for change, you first need to orient yourself as to your current church reality. Below, I will present a few common models of church and where they live on our chart. As we go through these options, I hope you will ask yourself where your past or current experience of church fits. You could even go ahead and put an X on the chart to mark your starting place. Our thing, our place. The first option is the one we've been talking about the most. Maybe when I described the fourth place church, it was a no-brainer. You thought, yes, that's us. It feels like everything about our church focuses on the event and the building. Our budget, time, and stress all point toward the weekend service. If that's true, you are somewhere in this area. Note to audio listener, this is a simple four quadrant, uh, but the only thing on here is the upper left that shows a church building in the Our Place, Our Thing. Our Thing, Their Place. Maybe your church is utilizing the first place, the home, for your small groups. Or maybe you meet in a school or other cultural venue for your gathering. If so, you might be somewhere in this gray region. Note to audio listener, this four-quadrant chart shows not only the our place, our thing with the church in it in the top left, but also in the the bottom half where it shows the their place, their thing, and the our thing in their place. There is a broad range to this area. If your church invests a small amount of time in small groups, while most of the church energy and senior leadership focus goes toward the building and the building-based events, you would still probably locate your church toward the upper range of the gray area. However, if your church has a more balanced approach, a church of groups, a simple church model, or practices missional communities and huddles, you might identify yourself closer to the bottom of the range. If you meet in a school and are intentional about integrating with their lives and events of that school that would move you into the to the right their thing. If you meet in a school but that's the extent of the relationship you would be further left toward our thing. Their thing, our place. This means that you own the facility and you allow other non-religious organizations to do their thing in your building. Maybe you have a building, but you use it more like a community center. You run a public coffee shop, enjoy positive tenant relationships, or house the homeless. Maybe you actually run a functional hospital building or clinic, or happen to also use some of the space for church services. To the degree that your place is a legitimate first, second, or third place for someone else, you have moved to the right of this shaded area. Note to listener, this diagram shows only the church and some other school, coffee shop, building in the Our Place, Their Thing quadrant in the upper right. Their Thing, Their Place. This is normal life. This is where all humans of all races and religions live, die, and pay taxes. Some organizations very intentionally staff their ministries in order to better hang out and love people here. Many parachurch ministries fit this category. Young Life, for example, spends a lot of time and energy on relationships with kids in their world. They go to football games and hang out in the school cafeterias, even senior leaders' office at coffee shops. They intentionally structure their organization to integrate with the world of the people they are trying to reach. If that's you, maybe you are in this area. Note to audio listener last diagram in this chapter, it shows the bottom half of the four-part quadrant, uh, our thing in their place and their thing in their place. Again, there is a large variance. If your Young Life Club meets in a church building, that would push you toward our place. If your staff is great at contract work, meeting kids on their turf, that would push you toward their place. If you're finding it interesting that the parachurch largely occupies the same space as the early church, keep that thought in mind. There are many lessons the local church can learn from the parachurch as to how to structure themselves to integrate with our world. We will return to this idea later in the book. Along with many parachurch organizations, some missional churches, new monastic communities, and new parish or congregations would also locate themselves in this area. Where are you? go ahead and mark an X on the graphic above to indicate your starting point. You may adjust this as we go along, especially when we factor in the other two media of people and practices, but this gives you a good way to initially orient yourself for the road ahead. Fourth place people, Constantine had a dramatic impact on the modern church. We have now witnessed that impact as it relates to the medium of place. Instead of the church living among culture, we have been trying to welcome people to our clubhouse. We have too often become better at salesmanship than discipleship. Christendom, however, impacted much more than just place. Constantine's foundational shift also had a dramatic impact on our very idea of Christian leadership, our people. A church operating in the fourth place needs a certain type of leader to run it. Fourth places are complicated. Fourth places are demanding fourth places need to impress people if they're going to survive hiring someone like Jesus simply won't do you need a christian celebrity